Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Piff... What's this, what's this show called? <laughs> Pixel Sift, dude. Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift is I know we one. have some issues today, but come on, man. I know, having issues with my mouth. Uh, my name is Gianni, at least I think it is, who knows at this point. Uh, and I'm joined by Pixel Sift Next Gen, Mitch. Yep, hey, what's up? And Pixel Sift... I don't really feel very next gen today. Well, in comparison to Pixel Sift Retro, Scott... <laughs> yeah, you hey. You are. Uh, and that's a pretty awful joke, and thank you for that, James. It's a lasting legacy that he brings with us. We are joined by a much better James uh, in, in every single respect of the way. Uh, and your name is James Cook, and you're from Super Cookie Games. James, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Very, very glad to have you in the studio. You've been joining us for a, a good portion of the afternoon today. So. <laughs> a bit longer than usual. A bit usual. Yeah, exactly. Um, so James will be telling us all about his game, Crazy Coasters Rainbow Road a little bit later on and joining in our, our topic discussions, which are Scott. Okay, so the first topic we'll be talking about today is the future of AI and how a certain RTS may help evolve our technologies. Yep, and uh, we're also taking a look at... Um... <laughs> Already, I'm so distracted. Um, so we're all taking a look at regional regionalization for games, how games modify them, like how game developers modify their content to fit a different audience. Exactly right. Let's <laughs> jump into it, shall we? Did you know Pixel Sip is available on other platforms? You can find previous episodes on iTunes, Pocket Casts, YouTube, and on the Pixel Sip website. Have you ever played a game against an AI that was disappointing and lacking in challenge? Well, those days may be behind us. One of the more softly received announcements at BlizzCon 16 was that the team-up of the makers of StarCraft 2 with Google's DeepMind branch, which is, the dedicated to, or which is dedicated to developing sophisticated intelligence. They've teamed up to use the advanced gameplay of StarCraft 2 to develop and further the skills, challenge, and learning of artificial intelligence. And that's what we're looking at for today's first topic. I think, uh, you know, we're talking about the challenge of a game, right? So yeah. I don't know that DeepMind's going to be playing against you on Battle.net anytime soon. No, um, I but I'm going to have its own profile. I can yeah. tell you what a StarCraft AI does do to me on a regular basis. Go nuke. On. Just nuke It you. nukes everyone. Wow, look. And no matter how many humans are against it, it finds a way to nuke everyone. Hang on a second. Like, Hang on a second. Yeah. Wait, we're going to be teaching an AI how to nuke yeah. everyone? Seems like a bad Seems like road. a bit of a... Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing about this is the DeepMind project um, is using a game to develop the next generation of, of advanced intelligence. We saw earlier this year uh, there was a program also developed by Google called AlphaGo, um, which uh, was able to beat the best player of the game, uh, sort of the Japanese uh, board game Go, um, in basically was able to defeat him um, repeatedly just because they could go through every single calculation in the world. You know, we've seen stuff like this happen before. This isn't the first time that, uh, you know, a computer's been able to beat the best person in the, in, in the world at the particular game. The one that I remember the first time that came out, and, you know, Pixels if, uh Next Gen may not remember this one, but when Gary Kasparov um, was defeated by... Deep Blue, which is developed by IBM. You're right. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah. They're all just no idea what that is. So it's, yes. a it's a computer that could play this game called chess. Really? Yeah. They have made video What's game versions. What's chess? It's, uh, it's chess a, is an old school RTS. Yeah. It's, it's a tabletop game. Uh, Analog RTS. Yeah, it's a table yeah exactly. It's tabletop. It's got uh, many different plays. 
Um, you yeah, anyway. to show me that later from the RSL. That's right. I'll yeah. send it from the RSL. Um, <laughs> we'll get a, yeah. a cheap beer while we're there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, the big thing about this is that AIs at the moment are doing very specialized tasks. So playing a game of chess or playing a game of Go is a very specialized task. That AI, if you try to apply it to another context couldn't do it it's not designed for that it just wouldn't work the interesting thing about this starcraft 2 development is that the complexity of the game while it's still a game is actually a lot higher than say playing a game like chess you know there are multiple different strategies yeah because instead of like with a game like chess where you have pieces or in starcraft 2's case you go you have units um like they're not static and you know movement isn't turn-based either so that helps create a better um benchmark for the ai Basically, <laughs> the interesting thing I think would be is that obviously that you talked about this earlier, Mitch, as well, is that StarCraft does have a computer player built into it that is designed yep. for playing StarCraft. Are they just going to use those rules and apply it to, you know, like, Google's DeepMind project and then make the best StarCraft player in the world? And basically, Korea is just going to, you know, give up. They're going to shut down their TV channels, <laughs> um, you know. We'll see at the moment. Sorry to steal that uh, answer away from you, Mitch. That's but, all right. Um, the way it works currently for these AIs is that a, a bunch of guys that really know the game well um, develop a system so that, you know, once resources reach a certain point, the AI will do this. And once, you know, uh, units reach a certain point, the AI does this. <clears throat> and the idea is basically just to kind of remove that and make it more intuitive and make it actually intelligent rather than just reaching quotas and then performing a, you know, a mechanism. So how do, do they have any idea of how they're actually going to be teaching AI? Are they, they just going to throw them in front of a? Absolutely no idea how this is going to work, <laughs> and they don't know. Kind how of like to, us and or me and Jeff. Like, I mean, they obviously have some kind of idea how it's going to work, but they have absolutely no idea how it's going to, what it's going to happen or what the results right. are going to be. It's a bit it's crazy up in the air at the moment, which is exciting, but so also I, not helpful for. Are they know. going to test this AI in StarCraft? Or are they going to give the StarCraft AI some real world problems to solve? I think they're going to test it with StarCraft too. Right. But also, there's something about uh, this whole system being very open as far as the the advancement of the AI goes. Uh, it's going to be something that's not going to be hid behind closed doors. Um, so other people that are uh, working in advancing AI will be able to kind of work alongside them almost. James, do you think you could apply uh, Google's DeepMind project to any of the games that you've developed? Are they a next <laughs> stage after they've beaten StarCraft, they'll move on to something that you've made? Oh, well, I find the whole um, the whole concept really quite interesting um, because I imagine it's going to be like a machine learning style process where uh, they they will just continually play the games over and over. I mean, I find it particularly interesting. I mean, as as you uh, pointed out, Scott, that um, AI at the moment is very procedural in terms of if X happens, do Y, then do Z. Mm. So, I mean, then what will happen in StarCraft Two when they release DLC? And they had a, you know, is the machine going to adapt? Because that'd be really cool if they could just throw in a bunch of whole new <coughs> units it's never seen before, and suddenly it's got a strategy. Um, I think it'd be really cool, especially for esports at the top of the game, you know, to mm. see the advanced players. Me personally, I kind of like my AI a bit, bit flawed, so you've got some exploits to be able to win the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, when I'm feeling like uh, multiplayer is a little bit too much, it's nice to be able to just play against the iron and cream some competition for a bit. But as far as the distinguishing, how it's going to distinguish, you know, uh, between characters and whatever, basically that's the huge hurdle for them. Instead of it just doing, yeah, A happens, B, it does B. It needs to be able to dif- differentiate and see the player, the screen, how we see it. So um, basically, it's, they're going to have to work it so that the game and the AI hold information separately. So just because, it's like, say there's a fog over because you have an unexplored territory, the computer won't know what's under there. Like, at at the like moment, that's not how it works. Mm. But just like a person, exactly. So it will receive data in that kind of way. So separating it. 
from the computer itself. It's interesting. I think StarCraft 2, and you, you touched on it there, James, that, that you know, the esports level is very, you know, there is an ideal way to play. And some of these things are down to milliseconds if you do them at the right time. To me, that sounds like a computer program, right? I you think- are programming a correct ideal path. And that seems something that's ideal for a computer to do. Don't quote me on this, but I think the ideal actions per minute, I think for, or actions per second, I think for a StarCraft player is like, I think 20 mm-hmm. or something like that. They can actually do, they can click the mouse that many times and that yeah. many times. And a computer will probably not even have to deal with that because no. a computer doesn't have any mechanical constraints. doesn't have to, you know, deal with meat space like we do. <laughs> RSI. Uh, it can just plug in directly using uh, USB 2.0 probably yeah. and get Look, that mouse working 100%. Maybe, Here's, maybe just join up with the other side of Google and have hardware arms. So they do yeah. have to oh, use yeah. the mouse and stuff. You know, nice. Throw that into the mix. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd <laughs> be really Well, here's how we'll know that the AI would have made it. It'll, when the patch notes come out, it'll be the first one in the top of the... It'll be the top rated comment bitching about the nerfs to the battle cruiser or something. Exactly. That'll be yeah. there. Like Google, Google Deep Mind, the, the, the robot Deep yeah. Mind will be there. Very interesting. Look, I think this is something that's going to be obviously once it masters StarCraft, which of course is a you know an ideal Huge part hell. sort of game. What's it going to move to next? Is it going the to world. be is AI going to be taking out uh, you know people in Call of Duty and you know trash talking them there, or maybe it will move to a politer world where an AI doesn't need to waste its time telling you you're terrible. It knows mathematically that you're terrible, so <laughs> you know it's very existent. It'll be it's, like above the level of trolling. It just won't even need to tell you you're bad. To. It'll just ignore you. It'll just close your bank yeah. accounts or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. not want not want to group up with you. <laughs> Look, really fascinating. We'll see a bit more of this as it comes along. Um, right now, though, let's uh, jump into our next topic. Bring it on, Deep Mind. Thanks. Pixel Sift! It's not Pixel Siv. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift! And we are joined in the studio today by James Cook. He is from Super Cookie Games. Half based in the UK, half based here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're quite a global team, <laughs> the two of us. Using the, the magic of the internet to kind of, you know, telecommute between the, the two yeah. places. Um James, tell me a little bit about the the process of designing your games. You know, you've got a team that is split across there. How, how do you go through? You, you've had a, a you know a large number of releases. I think it was a fourteen yes. fourteen releases now with um, your newest game, uh, Crazy Coasters Rainbow Road uh, number fourteen. Tell me how that works. How, how do you make a game? Okay, so um, I know he's, I know he's probably watching this thing, so I'll just mention him. Dan, my partner in crime, he's the uh, UI art designer guy. I mean, I I can only do code. I can't draw at all if you saw my drawings it's uh, it just wouldn't work um but really i mean the way it works between us not one of us has pure direction in terms of we're going to do this it's going to be x it's going to be y it's like we're going to do that it's more of because of the beauty of the time split i can one of us can write down like a, a wall of text in a message app send it across and then the other person says oh yeah that's a good idea that's a good idea and then uh, send back the thoughts and you've had time to think about it and kind of evolves over time i mean none of the games that we've had release uh, look and act how they were when they first started. It's kind of like an evolving process. One of the big things that I find really interesting as well is that you have this sort of, I guess, policy that you want to make sure that you actually release something when you when you start on working it. Does it mean that you kind of do get to a point with games when you're just like, okay, that's good enough, we just have to go and put that out because now we need to do it? Or do you feel like this is a good motivating thing to actually get something to as good as you can get it and then put it out? Uh, it's definitely uh, the motivational side of it. I mean, we don't have deadlines as such. Um, I mean, we do this spare time sort of stuff, so we never say, right, end of September, we've got a launch. But at the same time, we like to start with clear, realistic goals. So that might mean keeping the idea simple. So 
for Crazy Coasters, as an example, that just started off as a concept of a ball rolling around a hill. You know, we thought, yeah, it's, I wanted to learn um, some more physics and um, how I'd get that going. And then it kind of evolved into um, this idea of a roller coaster. I mean, there was a game about 10 years ago that was released on the old uh, Symbian phones. That's uh, where I drew that inspiration from. Um, and then Dan comes in and adds, oh, it'd be great if it, you know, it was these characters and it looked a bit like Happy Tree Friends and, you know, it was the carnage involved and... And uh, yeah, so we just gradually built it up, and now it's obviously got to the point where it's live. It's, um, so yeah, so it's more you know we just want to see things done, get it out there, you know. I, I like how you mentioned Happy Tree Friends because that's immediately what we thought when we <laughs> first saw the game. We're just like, oh man, Happy Tree Friends. I'm um, <laughs> like, so these characters actually appear in your other games. Are yes. they? Are they like? So how quickly did they take the leap from their very? I, I'd like to say like I guess. Um, he's grounded in reality games to a very almost violent environment of crazy coasters. Uh, well, it came about really because, I mean, from the art perspective, um, at least how I view it, it's very um, intensive. Uh, you can kind of call it like a content furnace if you keep trying to churn out new stuff all the time. And so really we look at what um, what assets can we reuse? What game can we, you know, what, where can we take these and reuse them to reduce Dan's workload in terms of making up new art? And he can focus on the other aspects of the game as opposed to um, reinventing the whole thing. So yeah, it, it kind of started off as that as an idea. And I wonder if Happy Tree Friends was his inspiration for the <laughs> characters, but uh, yeah. One of the interesting things, I guess, as you mentioned that as well, is that there is this sort of disconnect between the cutesiness of it um, and the sort of family friendliness of it. And the other game um, that you made with the baboos, the characters that you have in there, is sort of an all-ages friends, uh, you know, kids game. I I mean, and I, I mean, as I was looking this up, you you have had someone kind of say to you on, on online that, oh, I thought this was great. I was playing this with my toddler or whatever. <laughs> and then there was a bit of carnage in the game. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, is this something that you've sort of thought about when you were putting it together? Because, I mean, you have got, a similar theme, a similar set of characters, but now in a sort of different context. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, there is that um, sort of disconnect between between the two worlds, but um, the games themselves are fundamentally different. I mean, one's a puzzle-based game, um, the other one's more of an arcade-style game. So, like the the player bases don't tend to overlap. Um, but you, I mean, the game itself, we were very honoured to be in the Google Play Early Access for Crazy Coasters, um, which meant we got a place in the Play Store and we got loads of uh, downloads, which was great. We got loads and loads of uh, review feedback. Um, and we, by far and away, we had more people saying it should be more blood, more gore. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I, mean, I do sympathise with the people saying, oh, I thought this was going to be a kid-based game and it was going to be child-friendly and such. But you know, when you do a game through Google Play, they make you do a questionnaire on the content. You know, you know what does it contain? Is it cartoon violence? Is, you know, um, is there nudity or, or whatever? And so you fill it all out and out, at, at the end pops out a rating. So I think it's actually rated mature in this region and then there's Peggy 7 in other regions. So <laughs> it's not, um, we've not gone out there with the idea of it being family friendly as such. You know, mm. so. so like one of my favorite parts of the game is the soundtrack and how it just makes me uncomfortable in, every, in almost every way. How, how did you make that? Oh, well, okay. So that's uh, that was Dan again. He's probably uh, giggling as he's listening to this because uh, that, that's actually him laughing over the track and he's uh. up and changed the pitch. Because... Um, Again, he was just thinking of like this is a theme, you know, it's it's all cutesy and we're all gonna have laughs and then it all just changes to um, screams and cries and whatever when things yeah. start to go a bit wrong. Because I was playing it earlier um, and I was just playing it by myself and then uh, 
James, our, our video producer, was sitting over here, and then he's like, "What are you playing? That sounds that sounds terrible. <laughs> it's like it sounds it sounds really scary." And then yeah, was, and also like it, with that happy tree fans kind of vibe with the really high pitched stuff, but also with the gore stuff, you know, it, it's yeah, it's uncomfortable and it, almost even annoying at the time if you're not playing it. Mm. Like, were you worried about? I guess this is probably more of a question for Dan, but were you guys worried about uh, walking that line a little bit too sharp, you know, and making it a an, an, an annoying kind of experience? Um, well, really, I mean, the way it ended up sticking was how I found myself humming it at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, and then it was like, this must I be was working. Must be working. You know, yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate, I mean, what you're saying, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't want to be sitting on the bus playing full volume. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but that's when we kind of knew we were right, because yeah. we both said... Yeah, I was humming this you yeah. know, at home on my own. I wasn't even playing the game. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and, and playing it is completely other thing. You, you completely get immersed in it and you enjoy the sound and whatever. But uh, yeah, it was just something I was wondering about. Mm. I, I think it's really fascinating. We were talking about this a little bit earlier on and all of the games that you have are free-to-play games. They are uh, none of them paid. And we were talking about the value and the value proposition of what a free-to-play game is. Do you... You do this as sort of a part-time hobby, and this is kind of like you know your fun thing on the side almost. Do you think there would be a, like a good? Is there a good spot for developers to make, you know, the transition easily, or is it something that you would be interested in doing? And and can the market support that? We're going to a paid. Yeah, I think there, there's two real um, facets to that. There's one if you've got brand recognition. So we, as we all probably know, everyone listening, to Super Mario runs coming out for iOS. That's going to sell like hotcakes because Mario. Um, we saw the phenom- same kind of phenomenon with Pokemon Go, even though obviously that's not paid, but again, brand recognition. And then the other facet is if you've built up a substantial player base. So I do know there are developers out there that have made free-to-play games and they've you know, got thousands and thousands of people and then they've done, here's a paid version that's taken out all the oddities people didn't like and that's been successful. So, yeah, I mean, it, I, personally, the way we approach these, I don't think it would bother me too much if we did uh, paid. I mean, it would take really a company to come along and say, hey, we've got this brand, do you want us to make us a game? And be like, well, actually, you know, then that changes things a bit, you know, because it kind of raises the profile of everything. But uh, What would be the bar that you would say, okay, maybe we should start thinking about making a, a paid game? Um, I think if we start getting the call for it, uh, you know, if people start, um, if we kind of got the, the player base there to um, support, to, to, to facilitate that, really. Um, I mean, that and also if we build up a brand and it steamrolls, I mean, if you end up with like a bit of a Candy Crush saga and it goes forward, or even a Flappy Bird, I mean, you could go and branch off that brand um, and you, you, it'll be a starting point, right? So, yeah, it's, it would be a big step, I think, for us at the moment. Well, look, it's a very, definitely an interesting game, definitely one to check out. Um, you've got, if, if, you know, that one doesn't take your fancy, you've got 13 other ones to try out as well. So, um, James, where's the best place for people to go if they want to play some of the games that you and Dan have put together? Uh, if they visit our website of uh, supercookie.co.uk, um, all the links are there because we're on, um, we're on the Play Store, we're on um, iOS, we're on uh, Amazon Store. And for those that are still playing them, we're on the Ouya as well. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Yeah. I have additional questions. How does that work? Do, do you have an Ouya? Yeah, I do. Oh, man. I mean, it was basically, I've got so many devices at home, it's crazy. It's just mostly out of sheer interest. Is um, that the one with the peculiar controller? Uh, yeah, you could say that. Yeah. It nice. basically was supposed to be, yeah. I, I guess, like <laughs> I, the early sort of Android TV style sort uh-huh. of thing where you would have all these games that would kind of fit in there. And the, the big premise of it was you back it on Kickstarter and then you never have to buy a game again. Yeah. Um, how do you do you know how many people are playing your games on Ouya? On Ouya, um, I don't. However, 
I do know one of our games, um, I don't know if you saw it, uh, Thug Racer, it's like an OutRun style yep. uh, game, and that got uh, ripped off the UIA site via some Chinese uh, um, company, um, or it's in some Chinese app store. It's all attributed to super cookie games. They haven't tried to pretend it's them or pass it off. But that gets so many installs, it's crazy. But unfortunately, there's no revenue or anything attached to it because of the way Ouya worked, there was no advertising or anything. So, yeah, I think you get like a 1,000 downloads a day for people playing wow. that game in China somewhere. They have wow. over time. Yeah, they're really enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, um, awesome. But Ouya, yeah, I mean, that's kind of all died off now. I mean, I think yeah. people are turning them into like home theatre systems. And such. Yeah, yeah, it's so. kind of a little hacky box now, and that's mm. all, all it does. Look, James, very fascinating. Um, stick around. We might jump into our next topic now. Watch episodes, Let's Plays and more at youtube.com forward slash pixelsiftau. Yeah, so games often go through some changes before they are sold in other countries. The process of localization is, support, is supposed to make the transition between cultures smoother and help the game find a new place in a foreign market. But as we've seen time and time again, the people in charge don't always get it right. So you've been playing Pokemon, Johnny? I have been playing a little bit of Pokemon. And what I think have the what AI has been saying to you? Well, it's kind of, it's one of these things where it's, when you see it, it's really jarring because the rest of the game is actually quite well written and quite, uh, you know, the complexity of the plot is actually a lot better than some of the other ones that you would be playing. Um, the other Pokemon, it's not just run around, take your monsters, fight a bunch of other monsters, beat some people through to the end. Um, you know, they have tried to do a little bit of a better job at writing this this story, um, but there are some sort of strange sort of localization errors, and you can look online if you have a have a squeeze and type in, you know, localization, translation, Pokemon, Sun and Moon. There's plenty of examples out there. Um this is something that is kind of, I guess, really interesting for, for people who have to make games and then translate them to other markets where they may not be, you know, a fluent speaker I, of their language. James, I'm going to ask you a question first to throw to you as the resident game developer in the room. What What is it like supporting a, a game for, for a variety of different languages? I'm sure you aren't fluent in all of them. You may know a few, but... <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, topic. I mean, our approach to our games is try and remove the text element from it. Uh, but then, I mean, text translation is just one of the areas of localization because you've also got to consider um, some things that might be on display that are okay in some countries or not in others. So a good example of that is the classic Castlevanias where in, in Japan there was um, crucifixes everywhere but they got taken out uh, in the American release. So, you know, but I mean, for, for us, we don't tend to cross any lines. We're trying to keep everything in the middle to keep our lives easier. But... Um, uh, there's plenty of services out there for us to use for text translation. There was a really nice um, Castlevania mix-up in um, Symphony of the Night where it said um, you were doomed as soon as you lost the ability to love. Which is, you know, it makes sense, but that's not what it was supposed to well, say. That seems very poetic, actually. That's, yeah, right? that's, yeah. that's really true. Yeah. It's a little bit emo. Yeah. It's, well, Castlevania is a little bit emo. Yeah, true. That's, um, yeah, and I think, obviously, we were talking about this a bit uh, earlier on, but, you know, there are the classic examples that all your base are belong to us. Yes. Um, like I said, the, the original internet meme. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> from, uh, that's from Zero Wing. Uh, Allegedly. All your base internet. are belong to us. Yeah, I think this is something that's obviously, you know, there must be a lot of uh, games that are, start out in English and then get translated across into to other languages and to other, 
you know, in uh, markets and things like that where they have all these hilarious things. But, you know, we have live in a, a Eurocentric, English-centric world. So these are the ones that we know about as when these things, other games come across into. Well, in, in other industries, like for, I watch a lot of dubbed um, anime, and they actually get someone just to write another script for it that just meets like rough well, not, I wouldn't say roughly but like that gets the same messages across I wonder if that's what needs to be done about a, about our games does, does a western person actually need to rewrite large sections of it just so it makes sense to a western context I think I mean, you know you talk about games like that yes yeah, obviously that does make sense in a in a TV show sort of format right yeah. so that follows a format but a game is not always going to be the same you know you can have a game and it's crazy coasters or you can have a game and it's Final Fantasy 15 and it's not just get someone else to write that thing. You need right. if you're making Final Fantasy 15, the person needs to be involved at every stage of that. That's true. It's not something you could just say we'll redub this episode. And like successful translation is more than just the words. Like a lo- proper localization is far more than just replacing the words correctly. You know, you've got soundtracks and accents and mm-hmm. even like the accents of the eyebrows and stuff. You know, some of these are culturally different. Uh, I know that, that I remember they they changed Kirby quite a lot from Japan to US because of that exact reason they weren't going to convey the, the feelings and emotions enough so they gave it angry eyebrows and I think it's always a perfect example um, James I, I'm I, I'm sure you can relate to this as well but you know when people in in movies for example try to pretend to be an Australian when they obviously haven't been mm. haven't got an Australian person to talk to this or they may talk about people from the UK as well and they try to you know do a few of the uh, we're going to do a few of the phrases and that obviously doesn't you're work you're going to do some of those phrases right no, now no I'm not going to do some of those phrases <laughs> you would know what they are um, but yeah like I think that's something interesting that there is that cultural context that isn't always just as simple as language and some of those decisions have to be made at you know at the thing i mean it's a tough job i would i don't envy anyone who has to do it Um, it's a lot of research and effort and honestly a lot of maybe just living in the place for a long period of time well well, that's it i feel like somebody from the place where they're trying to make it localized should be involved in it quite heavily um for that for that aspect of the of the creation at least James, you've moved from the UK. Uh, you've been here for a couple of years. What are some of the things that you were really kind of surprising to you versus your idea of what Australia is? Oh wow! Um, <laughs> I don't know, well, great, I, Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to have to comment on our country. That's fine. That's all right. Uh, I'm still here, so you know it's all you know, good. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, uh, I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed being here. I mean, it's. I didn't realise how big cricket was here. Is one oh. thing I've noticed, um, and also everyone assumes because I'm in- English, we're just as crazy about cricket. But the coverage of cricket here is the same as our coverage of soccer back in the UK. I mean, um, you've got Adam Gilchrist presenting programs over here. We've got Gary Lineker presenting programs over there. Um, so, so there's aspect to it, and there's also a lot of uh, American culture here that I wasn't really expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to when I first came over, it's like, oh, it's a mix of English and American culture. But actually, no, it's Australian culture. I mean, that's that's kind of how I see it really now. So, for example, if an Australian was writing uh, a game that was set in the UK and it was focused on cricket, they may give it higher prominence than, uh, you know, maybe it actually mm. is worth because, you know, there is these sort of assumptions that people kind of make from from any of your perspectives about, you know, what this sort of thing is. So, yeah, very, very fascinating. I think this, when you're trying to make a game and trying to sort of simplify it down into all of these things, you, you, you have only got so much time, you know, you may be trying to make something that, that works. Yeah, the all, all these things we mentioned to do it properly, they take a lot of time and effort. And Absolutely. you need to get probably teams of people to do it right. So I I do kind of understand when occasional slip-ups are made. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like uh, all of the classic ones that have happened on the NES games and SNES games have been 
just like um, you know, all your blades belong to us. Yeah. You understand it? It's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. It's a good little joke. I mean, as you said, James, there are services available now that allow people to get their things kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, there's services like Mechanical Turk, which, you know, you can get things translated. And also there's direct translation programs that are the similar sort of system where you basically pay someone to translate your game into into a different language. So, you know, using the internet, we're able to kind of share a lot of this information and and, and come to a a good middle sort of position, I think, which is always good. So, you know, this is something that... uh, you know, it's maybe a bit of a chuckle that we'll have, yep. but um, you know, it's a hard job, and uh, you know, keep yep. at it. As uh, as pro wrestling used to say, a winner is you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, look, uh, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, a winner is you for uh, for listening to this episode of Pixel Sift. This is episode fifty six. I'm Gianni. Uh, we were joined by James Cook from Super Cookie Games. James, uh, tell us a little bit, uh, a bit more about your website. So, for example, if people want to go visit it, and what's the the best place to get your, your newest game? Uh, so again, it's uh, just visit supercookie.co.uk. Uh, you can go; mo- it's mobile compatible and stuff, and all the links are there. So the majority of our games are up on there. Um, and then yeah, it'll lead you through to the Play Store, or you can just search for Super Cookie Games on uh, social medias. Yep. Twitter, we're on there. All the um, regulars. All, all, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, in the Play Stores, and it will we'll pop up in some form. You'll also pop up on our website, which is www.pixelsift.com.au. Uh, we'll put up links to that so people can find all of the, the links up there as well. Uh, Scott, we're on social media. Are we not? Yes, we are. Uh, you can kind of... You can find us actually fast facebook.com forward slash pixel sift, twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au. And Mitch, our other episodes, if people want to watch them or listen to them or do whatever they want to do with them, you can do whatever you want with them on pixel sift.com. Dot au and also on YouTube, iTunes, Pocket Casts, or using the RSS link on our page. Look, and a very big thank you to Sarah, who's come in at very last minutes to help us with the uh, video production today. Thank you, Sarah. Couldn't have done Cheers, it without Sarah. you. Top work. We will be back again this time next week. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, James. Thanks. Cheers. Peace out.